Hello everybody, what's up? You're listening to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon, the podcast that dives into music, film and games and everything else in between. My guest on this week's episode is Peter McCormack, the host of the What Bitcoin Did podcast. Twice weekly, Peter interviews the brightest, boldest and most influential voices in the Bitcoin community. Launched back in 2017, What Bitcoin Did has gained a huge global following over its 283 episodes so far becoming the number one Bitcoin podcast in the world. We jumped into Peter's experience of buying Bitcoin for the first time, how Alex Winter's 2015 documentary Deep Web explored the controversies around the trial of Silk Road founder Ross Ulbrich, and what are the major financial pitfalls of the modern financial system, and his love for Bedford Town FC. So, if you're running, stuck in a traffic jam, or sitting behind a desk at work, I hope you enjoy my interview with Peter. So just a quick introduction for people who don't know your uh, Bitcoin journalism and podcasting work. Who are you and, and what do you do? Yeah, hi. Uh, thanks for having me on, Tom. Um, my name's Peter McCormack. Uh, I do struggle with the term journalist. Uh, it's a really funny term. Um, I tend to find that when people don't uh, like your work, uh, they'll say, oh, you're not a journalist, you're a, you're just an entertainer. Um, or when they expect higher standards of you, they, they say, oh, well, you're a journalist, you should do better. And... I think th- yeah, I think this world of um, podcasting is kind of it's kind of like a blend of entertainment and journalism. But but it started for me by complete accident. Um, funny enough, uh, about three it was three years ago last week. Um, so my background's advertising. I worked in the advertising industry for nearly twenty years, um, and then got divorced. Uh, fell out of love with the industry. I was kind of done by then and so I took a year off work and stumbled into this Bitcoin world uh had a little go at trying to be a trader uh, which I wasn't well I, I made some money but it was pure luck I wasn't particularly very good and by a chance set of events I ended up um spending a week with a quite successful podcaster a guy named Rich Roll uh who's like a vegan ultra athlete um and he was running a yoga retreat in Italy which I ended up on and spent some time with him and his wife and when I was out in LA um, he said come and visit him so I did and I said you know what Rich I, I kind of like your lifestyle I'm, I'm thinking of doing my own podcast uh, I'm in this Bitcoin thing how do I do it and he just gave me all the tips he said this is the equipment you need this is what you need to do and I went on Amazon that, that day bought the microphones and the setups and uh, reached out to somebody did did the first interview and and here we are uh, three years later and you and me are talking about it. Um, so I guess like the big question before we jump into your sort of personal history, we sort of like Bitcoin, um, and it's a question that comes up so uh, so many sort of like times, and it's sort of like an interesting one to sort of answer. And each person's got a different sort of explanation for this. So, what is Bitcoin, um, and how do you explain it to people? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually, and I tell you why it's a really good question because it is a very hard thing to get your head around to begin with. People hear about it a lot. So usually you hear about it. Either there's someone in your social circle who's the the Bitcoiner, that person who's into Bitcoin, or you hear about it on the news and it's either a hospital's um, IT systems have been uh, hijacked and they, they want a uh, ransom paid in Bitcoin, or you hear about the price going up or the price crashing. But you don't really hear too much about really what it what it is. And it takes a long time to get into it. But I think one of the best explanations I've heard and the one I tend to stick to myself is I say to people it's basically uh, gold it's like gold we call it gold 2.0 but it's got this 
magical ability that you can teleport it anywhere around the world. And then people, that kind of opens up kind of people's ears. They say, what do you mean it's like gold? And I explain, well, you think of gold, most people think of gold as jewellery or something that's used in electronics. But actually, gold's primary purpose is value. It's a store of value and something that holds value. And you explain to people why it holds value. It's because it's scarce. There's a limited amount of gold in the world it's, and it's pure. Um, so, But it's very it's scarce. It's very hard to get hold of. So um, it tends to hold value quite well over time. Um, Bitcoin is, I explained to him, it's virtually, it's virtually the same. What it is is it's something that is scarce. There's only 21 million of them. And because of that, it holds value. Um, but it has this magical ability that the problem there's a couple of problems you have with gold is that it doesn't function very well as day-to-day money in that uh you know after this interview you said to me do you know what pete um do you want to do you want to uh do you want to buy um my i don't know do you want to buy one of my t-shirts off me and i'll be like yeah i said well it's you know 20 pounds and if i wanted to pay you in gold gold i've got two problems i've got my big lump of gold which i have to somehow you know shear a little piece off and hope it's uh, of the right value and then i've got to get it to you which means i've got to post it to you but the great thing about bitcoin is divisible down to eight decimal places so maybe it'll be 0.000325 bitcoin or whatever and then you just send me your address and i i can send it to you and so it's um it's digital gold for the it's sorry it's uh gold 2.0 for the digital era What's interesting about the parallel between gold and, and and Bitcoin and what's kind of interesting at the moment being in this sort of like space, being in sort of like Bitcoin, is over centuries um, there's the idea of the sort of gold myth and what it's been sort of like used for and people have written about it and, and lasted after it. And we're very at the very beginning infancy of the sort of like, in a way, sort of Bitcoin myth of writing a narrative about this particular sort of currency of what it means and what it can do. Um, and I guess is that sort of like part of your... Um, work I guess or like podcasting is to engage um in this in this uh, sort of narrative and sort of like expand upon it and explain it to people yeah in some ways I, I, the reason I set up the podcast is because bitcoin is quite complicated there's a, there's a couple of key areas that are very complicated uh one the technical side just getting your head around what a decentralized system is and how it works and how you as an individual interact with that um because being decentralized there's no customer service um, you are self-sovereign you are responsible for your bitcoin and if you make a mistake you might lose it um, so understanding that is quite complicated the second thing is the economics side to things uh, i studied economics at school and it's very much keynesian economics which i've come to learn is is um, actually a flawed um, uh, model of economics um, so there's a lot to get your head around so i made the show as a way just to speak to the experts and ask them questions i'm more of a creative um you know i i'm happy in the world of marketing campaigns and advertising world so i just made a a podcast where i would just get the experts on and i would say look i don't understand this can you explain it to me um and so that's what i do yeah and um trying to explain to people this kind of transitional period we're going through and it's quite a funny one because again i have taught relentlessly about bitcoin to my friends a lot of them still just have no interest and don't understand it where i have so much conviction that the majority of my wealth is stored in it um despite it being volatile and the price going all over the place my long-term conviction is with bitcoin so it's a lot of my time is trying to understand that and then trying to translate translate that so it's easy for people to understand it and it is a big jump you know it is a big jump for people to get their their head around 
Um, but I, I think it's really important because if you, I, I always think a good analogy is if you think of um, CDs and MP3s. I, I don't know about you, but I've in my in my wardrobe here, I've got over a thousand CDs sat there that haven't been touched or played. I, I God knows how long, five years, six years. But I remember when MP3s first came out, I was like, no, I'm not doing that. I want my CD and my inlay card and I want to hold it and I want to be able to take my CD from from the house into my car and put it in. And 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 for a few years, MP3s you know, existed. I even got myself a, a, an early... Um, iPod the iPod right and then, then I would then I would convert my CDs to mp3s and upload it and then they just Spotify came along and I created a playlist and I paid my whatever subscription I was like shit there is absolutely no need for me to ever buy a CD again and I, I never did and I've no need for my CDs that what why what possible need do I have for a CD when I can store my entire music collection on my phone and I can access at any point, in any order, in any location in the world. And and this is a very similar thing with Bitcoin, is that gold is gold has been a little bit out of reach for most people because it's just a kind of like a strange concept, unless you're wealthy or an investor. It's kind of a strange concept holding gold. Well, Bitcoin makes it a little bit more achievable, and, and it solves exactly the same problem in that I can access my wealth from any place, in the world, I can transfer it to anyone else anywhere in the world, and I could, and it's I can access it in any way, and it's divisible in any way I want. So, once you start, if you can get your head over the fact that some, you know, some of the old gold bugs can't get into Bitcoin, and I think it's two reasons: they can't get beyond the fact they f- can't physically hold it, and secondly, they can't get their head beyond the fact because they think, well, it's used in, you know, aerospace and and uh, electronics and dentistry, then that's what gives gives it value, which really it isn't what gives it value once you get yourself past that and you realize actually it is far superior to gold that it's it's very easy to see why so much money is now going into it it just it just takes people a while to get to that point so i kind of just want to jump into your leap into uh, bitcoin so i understand your first experience of buying bitcoin was to purchase cannabis oil for your mother on silk road and i just wondered what your point of view on uh, bitcoin was at that time well, actually, it, it was before then, but that, that 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 was my return. So actually, I first discovered Bitcoin in, in 2013 via the Silk Road. So one of my friends phoned me up and he was like, uh, Pete, this is a website you can buy drugs on. I was like, what? And bear in mind, at that time in my life, I worked in the advertising industry and, you know, might as well be honest, cocaine was everywhere and it was something, um, you know, I, I'd done. It's, it's not something I have in my life anymore. Um but uh, at the time, you know, I was like, what, what, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, look, um, there's this website and uh, it's like Amazon. So all the people who are buying and selling are reviewed. So people don't sell crap. And, you know, I don't know if what your listener base will be like, whether they'd be pro or anti-drugs. I personally, I don't care. People do whatever they want, but whatever they want in their body. I don't believe the government should uh, regulate this. And one of the things I do know is that the war on drugs has failed. Um, and the war on drugs also leads to a harm and higher levels of crime, whereas the Silk Road, the website um, we're talking about, actually lead, led to reduced harm and, and took a lot of crime out of the industry, a lot of danger out of the industry. It actually, essentially professionalised it. And, and a good, sorry, I'm just going on a tangent here, a good way to, to look at this is that if historically, if you're a weed smoker, 
and you wanted to, you know, you want to get a bag of weed, you'd phone your dealer up, he'd say, I'll be there in 15 minutes, maybe you'll be there in an hour, maybe you'll meet in, in Sainsbury's car park, you know, maybe you'll cut you shy on, on the amount, but it's just, you know, it's a, a very basic operation. Now it's legal in the US. You know, I spent a lot of time out there. One of my friends owns a, a store in Colorado. It's so professional now. You know, you go in there, they've got every possible strain you could want. The people who work behind the desk understand it. They, you know, you can say, oh, I want it to chill out. I have anxiety or I have sleeping issues. They'll tell you which ones to have. You can buy it as a drink. You can buy it as the weed itself. You can buy ready. It's just, it's like going into the Apple store for weed. It's professionalized the industry. Um, and that's essentially what the Silk Road did. So my friend was like, yeah. So I went on and I was like, <laughs> straight to the uh, menu and it's like weed, uh, heroin, cocaine, but like Bibles and all kinds of things. And I, you know, and, it, and you had to have this thing called Bitcoin. And I, was, I said to my friend, I was like, what's this? And he's like, I don't know. It's just like some digital money. You go to this website, local Bitcoins, and you send them some money. They send you some Bitcoin and you use it. And I was just like, this is fucking mad. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so I used the website uh, quite a bit. Um, uh, and I thought it was amazing. Um, what ended up happening, though, is just during that period, I ended up getting divorced, did a bit too much uh, cocaine about that period, and then stopped. And I just I stopped taking drugs around then. Um, funny enough, though, I'm, I'm very good friends with the, the mother of the guy who has been sent to prison for the rest of his life, the greatest Hill Road. That's Russell Ulbrich. Um, I know his mum very well. I, I've interviewed her a few times, and um, that's a whole other tangent we can go down. But what ended up happening then is, like, you know, I quit work, took a year off work, discovered Bitcoin. No, no, what happened was then my mum got sick with cancer, and we wanted to treat her with cannabis oil, obviously illegal in the UK because we have you know, archaic drug laws here. And so I, I said to my dad, I said, remember that Coke problem I had? He said, yeah. I said, well, we can go on that website. Well, not that one because the Silk Road had closed down by that. But I said, there's these websites, uh, but you just need Bitcoin. And so we, I Googled um, Bitcoin, found the Coinbase website. We bought a Bitcoin, uh, got the treatment for my mother. Sadly, she passed away, but we um, got the – but I still had like – half a bitcoin left over or something i can't remember and there was this other thing called ethereum um and i was out of work i still had money left over from my advertising career so i ended up buying a bunch of bitcoin and and going deep in it then so it's a really weird set of events that's fascinating and then um so i was just listening to your first ever podcast interview you did almost um four years ago um with the crypto trader luke martin and Ooh, three years ago yeah, three. It was three years. Yeah, three years ago, and it was released three. Uh, so it was, it was Thursday today, was it? Tuesday, I think, was yeah, the twenty fourth. That was the third anniversary of launching the podcast. Oh, okay. So, yeah. So, I, so I was sort of listening to that, and um, and in terms of like talking about sort of financial strategy, long term in investing, and I guess like so from you diving into sort of like Bitcoin from that personal. Um, experience, you know, sort of moving from Bitcoin from being like a dark net sort of like token to a bona fide digital currency. How did that sort of like transition um, take uh, sort of take place for you, I guess, for you to see it as more of a sort of serious um, thing? Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. So, yeah, I, I guess what it was in doing the podcast, I just constantly met people and spoke to people. You know, sometimes I would be talking to a technical, but I think my third interview was Jameson Lop, who's a you know, technical Bitcoin guy. And and then I'd maybe meet somebody who's on the economic side. And I kept hearing about this thing, this concept of Austrian economics. So spent a bit of time like learning the basics of Austrian economics and um, learning about what inflation really means and 
yeah i'm just like trying to trying to and you know i guess what happened was i i there's this crossover between economics and um like political ideology and there's lots of people in bitcoin who are very much uh, anti-government anti-state um i'm cynical of the state but i'm not a full anarchist um but there's a lot of libertarians in, in this community and i guess i just spent a lot of time with them and you know they exp- explained a lot to me about the problems with the state, um, the ability the government has to print money at will, what the impact that has on everyone else, uh, collectivist ideas of, you know, so, some people call it socialism, but it's not true socialism. But I, I guess we live in that age where people think if you're taxed and that tax is redistributed to, to poor people, they think that's socialism now, but obviously it's not true socialism. But, but you know, the, the criticisms of that, and I was very much grew up as somebody who was happy to pay tax and agreed with the redistribution of income. But, you know, I spent a lot of time looking into how flawed uh, the state is, especially with regards to, um, you know, financial, uh, managing the, the financial coffers. I think here in the UK, we can just look at what's happened with the coronavirus and, uh, you know, how much money the government spent on, you know, on certain issues and the amount of money they're borrowing and the impact that has on people and I, I i guess i'd got to the point where some people said some like really interesting things to me like we're obviously in the uk we're huge fans of the nhs and it's very very controversial to say the nhs is bullshit people don't like to hear that but i think it's a debate that needs to happen and and my my own personal criticism of the nhs comes from my experience of uh spending time with the, these people explaining issues to me now i'm not saying let's dump the nhs what i'm saying is is that the problem you have with like you and i have to run a budget right you, to, you, pro, you either have rent or mortgage and bills to pay and if you can't pay those you can borrow money if you can't end up paying your loans you default and you can be bankrupt the government is never essentially bankrupt they can just almost borrow relentless amounts of money and if they struggle to pay back their money then what they can do is they can essentially drive up inflation which kind of pays it off um, um, by devaluing the currency. You know, there's no real penalties for the government for making mistakes, but the penalties happen to us. And if you look broader, other countries have, you know, really suffered under mismanaged economies, Lebanon recently. There's people who've had their entire savings wiped out through inflation. It happened in Venezuela. I actually went out to Venezuela and made a film about Bitcoin there. And, you know, I saw exactly what's happening there, the results of hyperinflation. Um and it just, I guess what's happened is Bitcoin's got me to this point where I've realized that I'm not completely anti-state, but I think there should be a drive for a smaller state, um, less government interference, less regulation, less tax. And, uh, yeah, it's like this thing where people say, oh, we shouldn't have billionaires. Like it's a zero-sum game. What we should have is uh, better incentives for people to, to work and be productive and... So going down this kind of our whole Austrian economic side of things has just taught me some of those. Now, I, look, I wouldn't be the guy to interview about that because you know, there are experts in that area. But what it, what I've done is learned enough about it to learn that you know money can be debased, um, um, and the, the value you think you hold can be wiped out, and potentially the value you hold can be seized from you or. or, or it, in certain ways and it just makes me want to hold my money and um and be responsible for my own choices and have less interference from the government
what I find interesting and something that sort of cropped up as I sort of was doing sort of like research for this interview and in terms of sort of currency, um, interestingly, so America for a long time, I think maybe like 200 years, they had like competing paper money um, from private and um, public banks. There wasn't like a unified currency for the longest time in America. And then suddenly they came up with the uh, dollar to sort of like centralize it. So what's sort of interesting about cryptocurrency that I sort of like find, because obviously you've got Bitcoin and Ethereum and Litecoin and all these sort of altcoins are sort of competing in this sort of like space, um, that somehow we're so much more um, sceptical of, of Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, yet the whole, I guess, like the evolutionary process of money has been sort of like competing currencies till one kind of wins out. And we're just in a particular period of history where we're reassessing uh, money and its value and how it's applied to our sort of day-to-day -day lives and who actually has control um, over that. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, the competition for money is important. The comp competition itself is important. Now, this is why um, this is why it's important. This, you know, the true socialism where the state owns the means of production is proven time and time again through history. History to generally be almost flawed in every instance. Um, I'm sure the I'm trying to remember my childhood. I mean, I'm I think I'm a bit older than you. How old are you, Tom? Oh yeah, so you're about a decade younger than me. But I'm I I kind of remember um, the period where uh, we start where the government started to privatize industries, and there was like that was seen as like heresy. Um, but my understanding is that once you privatize, you should have competition, and competition is good. You want competition in the market. You know, one of the problems with, say, something like the NHS, it doesn't really have competition and it will always be bailed out. Um, you know, competition is good. Competition drives better productivity. Uh, and, and that should exist for money too. You know, we should have competition for money because um, the reason I hold most of my wealth in Bitcoin is because I believe it's the best form of money there is. You know, when I compare it to... Uh, so there's a couple of real standout things to me. It's that... Nobody can steal it from me. I hold my money. No, I don't have to have a bank account. I hold those private keys. Uh, no government can debase it. I mean, you've, I don't know if you've seen the our government's debt to GDP ratio is over like 105% now and the US is like nearly 130%. That, that gets paid off through inflation and inflation is a hidden tax. We get, we get almost conditioned to believe in like inflation is a natural healthy part of the economy it's not and inflation is a hidden tax it's 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 if you're not if your interest rate is below inflation which it is you know you'd be lucky if you get half a percent interest rate right now and we're hitting two two and a half percent uh inflation then then your savings are being inflated away your hard-earned and you know you you extrapolate that over you know, 10 20 years you can see what happens so I like the fact there's a form of money that nobody can do that to. And I think that makes it far superior. That's why I hold the majority of my wealth in it, but not all of it, right? But I do hold the majority of my wealth in it. And that's the competition for money. And the great thing about, the thing I really love about Bitcoin compared to everything else is that we live in a very complex world. And the financial system itself is very complex. And all the rules of the financial system are created by a group of people in, in government, essentially, you know, alongside the central bank. Essentially, it's a small group of people trying to create a set of rules for, that work for everybody to try and keep as many people employed and you know, out, um, you know, out of poverty as possible. The thing I really like about Bitcoin, it has a few very simple rules that everybody knows. And it puts the responsibility on you to be productive and to save. Now, I, I know the basic rules of Bitcoin are... There's 21 million of them. 
That's the first basic rule I understand, and there will only ever be that. Therefore, I th- and, and then the other rule, uh, the other really important rule is that every day uh, through the uh, process of mining, 900 new Bitcoins are issued into the market. And I know in about three and a half years, that will halve again. And every four years, that will halve until um, all the Bitcoin has been mined. So they're two very basic rules. So I know my... You know, we live in a society that uh, expect wants us to spend, wants growth, 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 and expects us to spend. And because of that, it cheapens a lot of things. You know, we have, you know, you go to shops like Primark and TK Maxx, and it's cheap, fast clothes that you can have you quick or cheap and just chuck away. Whereas I actually like a society whereby we're a little bit more frugal. And so in terms of something like Bitcoin, I, I'm fully aware that because of its limited supply, you know, over time, natural laws of economics, it goes up in value. Therefore, I'm more frugal. I, you know, I want to earn Bitcoin, and I, I really don't want to let it go. And it just it flips the script on everything and puts the responsibility onto the individual, and that I just really like about it. So, just sort of parallel, sort of jumping away from uh, from that a little bit, and we're sort of there's sort of like a th- sort of through line between between that and and the, sort of my next question. What did you kind of think about when you saw Alex Winter's um, documentary? Um, the deep web that focused on the trial of Silk Road um, founder Ross Ulbrich. I think I think he did a, a pretty good job. Um, it's a, it's a really it's a it's a story that's very close to me. Um, so it was I think something like my twelfth interview was his mother, and I've interviewed her three times, and we spent time together at conferences. And um, Ross has also written to me a couple of times. I've written to Ross. Um, it's a very in, in, interesting story for me because. It's, it takes us back to this point of like, what is the role of the state? You know, is the state there to, should the state be there to coordinate things that are best coordinated centrally? Or is it to tell us, a group of people, to tell us what to do? So I like the idea of centralising, you know, naturally as humans, we are, we naturally organise in groups. We, nat- we are naturally collectivists. And that was about survival. If we go back thousands of years, you know, the individual was at risk uh, on his own. So, you know, built societies and societies that defended themselves. Um, And, you know, and from that, uh, societies that worked together to be productive, to, you know, to, to, you know, to build towns and such. And at some point, we ended up migrating to this point where we had rulers. Now, I don't mind the state when the state does certain important things. Like, I think... Sadly, we live in a dangerous world and I don't like war, but you need defence. And that's better organised centrally. I also believe you know, certain things like borders are best managed centrally. I think certain things like the roads are better managed centrally. But do I believe a group of people should be sat in a room in London dictating whether I should be what I should be able to put in my body because there's so much hypocrisy right should what we can have alcohol you know we I mean the most stupid one in this country is that you can have alcohol and cigarettes but you can't have weed um so alcohol is a far bigger killer than smoking marijuana it causes a lot of problems in society uh, abuse neglect violence um cigarettes pretty much just their only role in society is is taxation and death whereas there's numerous studies with marijuana that has proved it's medicinal um, and um, yeah, it helps people with sleep issues, anxiety and all kinds of issues, right? 
Yeah, we have a set of rules agreed centrally that says you can do A, but you can't do B. And why is that? You know, even even other drugs, ecstasy. I mean, ecstasy has now been proven to help people with PTSD. Uh, there's some move to liberalise um, mushrooms. Uh, I think in Colorado, pot- potentially that's going to be decriminalised or made legal. I can't, I can't remember. Yeah, I think we're going to look back in a couple hundred years when people look back and say, well, what do you mean you were told what you could and can't do? And it's, it's essentially, it's like, it's, it's a form of enslavement. So, and the war on drugs has completely failed. When, when you, it's kind of like a, pretty clear that if you um any form of prohibition leads to control by criminals because there's so much money to be made you know drugs is so much money to be made from uh, um from you know south american gangs and you know local gangs there's so much money to be made in the drugs trade you know and they're dangerous trades um my my overriding feeling is if you decriminalize all drugs or professionalize them, yes, you have to accept the downside. There are people who will want to smoke heroin, but they want to do that anyway. But what you're going to do is you're going to remove a lot of crime and violence and danger from in the system. And I think the Silk Road proved that because it went from a point of you had to go and meet some dodgy dealer somewhere where you didn't know if you were going to get robbed and you didn't know what what um uh the quality of the drugs whether the be you know most of the people who die from taking for example ecstasy is because of weird impurities um you don't know what you you're going to get and and there's like this trail of blood and violence that gets it there i mean you know it, I, I i somebody did cocaine but i was fully aware of like the 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 criminality behind it but but it's a failed war what the silk road did is it removed that you know People, you know, the people who were supplying could professionalize their industry. They didn't have to uh, fight for turf. They could set themselves up somewhere, sell online, and distribute, distribute, distribute in the post. Get paid in Bitcoin. So there's a there's a it's worth looking up the Drug Policy Alliance because they did a study that how um, the Silk Road removed uh, violence and danger on the on the street both. Uh, for consumers and sellers so i absolutely supported it i'm like a huge fan of the silk road i was like this is a solution to a, a stupid problem which uh um that is based on the the historic morality of society that government chooses um so yeah i fully supported um any investigation and any documentary anything that shines a light on that i i, I fully support it in, in regards to um, Ross and his criminal case, so it's I guess like it's interesting because in terms of the people or like the law enforcement or the people sort of surrounded that, what's sort of interesting about the Silk Road is it was this community and um, forgive me, like I'm not a hundred percent on like all, all the facts, but it was sort of speculated yeah, that the um, Dread Pirate Roberts was a username that was occupied by three or four different people, and Ross just happened to use that moniker when he was doing more the, I guess like customer service and uh, kind of things, and to purely pin the whole um, creation of Silk Road, its its management, its coding on one person would be too much because it was such a sort of vast and sprawling. Uh, a business so in terms of how he's treated like he was pinned as being the sort of big sort of like drug kingpin and as far as i know he's the only person that's been uh prosecuted in regards to sort of um uh, silk road and also he got a life sentence from that and oh, i believe from the court case that he wasn't allowed to present 
evidence that would contradict the narrative that the US government had, had built against him. And I just wondered what your sort of thoughts and feelings were around that. Well, it was very obvious they wanted to create an example of somebody. They wanted to scare people off, create an example um, of somebody who, you know, was making a mockery of, of the, the war on drugs. And as such, they, you know, they um, they prosecuted him under the, I can't remember the actual law, but it's the kingpin rule, right? Uh, the same stuff they say for um, cartel members, uh, Mexican cartel dealers and such. And therefore, he ended up with um, a double life sentence plus 40 years. So he's in, essentially going to be incarcerated for the rest of his life. Um, I think they wanted to create an example. I think there's lots of flaws in the case. I don't think he... It's a very interesting thing. I actually asked Lee and his mum. I said, yeah, whatever we think, he committed a crime. What do you think should have happened? And she said, no, I accept that. I believe he committed a crime. And I think time served now should be enough. And... I'm of agreement. I mean, no use to society is being served keeping him locked up. Um, But what's very clear is when you start digging into the case, I mean, I'd have to go back because I haven't looked at it for some time, like I admit, but there's just so many flaws in the case, certain evidence, the way it's presented, certain evidence that was missing, some of the advice he was given. Um, I think Judge Forrest um, absolutely wanted to... set create an example out of him but there's been so much hypocrisy since you know the guy who created silk road 2 i'm i'm trying to remember like i'm sure he got like weeks or something and you know he was selling um pedophile material on his whereas ross had like a moral backbone it was like his belief was you should buy anything which uh, uh affords you freedom whereas other silk roads and other dark markets since haven't given a shit it's just about making money um so yeah, I mean, I would what I would encourage is anyone who is interested, rather than me trying to like remember things, because like I said, it's been a while since I've looked at the details of the cases, is to check out the free Ross website. And there's also a series called Railroaded, which is available on my podcast and available via the website, which will tell you a lot of the, the flaws in the case. And um, and I just don't. Th- and I think it's if you're completely anti-drugs, yeah, or if you've lost someone to drugs, it's going to be very difficult for you to to see the side of the argument but if you can be dispassionate about it i think it's very difficult for anyone to believe that any good is being served by society keeping keeping him in jail it's just it's just crazy that um that they could yeah that he would get like sort of life in life imprisonment for that and i think because you just think like okay so hsbc is known for um laundering billions of dollars of mexican drug cartel um, money and there was this huge sort of press conference where they were going to sort of like prosecute the u.s government was going to prosecute them and they sort of backed out because they didn't realize that that would be like the third sort of financial pillar that the rest of the world is based upon and if you remove that pillar then we're all basically fucked basically if if you prosecute hsbc um and people uh, like them they, like the world's sort of fucked. Yet somebody who has, um, uh, I guess, like provided a service which people want they're engaged in and has legitimised and actually taken some out, some of the violence out of the of the drug market. Because I'd say, like, especially with like weed in itself is um, is fine, but it's like how you how you kind of get hold of it and how it's sort of produced and what that's money what that money is sort of like, um, used for causes a lot of uh, problems around that and um, I guess like formalising that or knowing where it's going can only improve things for people yeah I mean there's so much hypocrisy in the system uh, I, I think a great example is if if you look at the 2008 financial crisis um, essentially the whole world was brought to its knees by 
poor policy decisions uh, within the US government over multiple administrations, um, poor advice by the Fed, and uh, greedy Wall Street bankers who created a ticking time bomb through greed. And nobody went to, well, one guy went for jail, went to jail, I can't remember his name, the guy at Credit Suisse who was basically hiding 100 million in losses, but no one essentially went to jail for that. Yet we had Black Lives Matters protests was triggered by the arrest of George Floyd, who, by the way, is not, you know, I don't need to debate whether or not he's a good person or not. Um, he was using a fake $20 note and he ended up being arrested and, and losing his life. And we just have this so much hypocrisy in the system whereby the big banks and, and, and the big corporates seem to get away with stuff. And, and, and it's just hypocrisy all over the place. And it just, yeah. And, and, and I'm, I try to avoid being a conspiracy theorist, um, which is very easy to do these days, especially with Twitter echo chambers and the crap that comes out from 4chan and QAnon and that. But, but at the same time, I do recognize there is a them and us with the elites and there is a lot of hypocrisy in the system and, and people get away with stuff which they shouldn't do. Which is an interesting point because I would just like to draw, um, to sort of moving on like a little bit into the sort of more um, institutional aspect of investing in, in uh, Bitcoin. Um, so mm -hmm. sort of counterpoint the deep web film, um, a year later, Chris, I'm probably going to pronounce his last name incorrectly, but I think it's Karuchi's. Um, film Banking on Bitcoin, looks at the battle to open the first Bitcoin exchange on Wall Street. But just in terms of broad brushstrokes, do you think like mainstream capitalism will ultimately diminish Bitcoin's ability to really change our current financial system? Uh, no, I think Bitcoin can change the system itself. Um, there's this meme that goes around Bitcoiners where they say Bitcoin fixes this. So when you find a problem in the system, you say Bitcoin fixes this. It's the idea being is that that the a lot of the problems in the world, you know, in in the in, in a lot of the problems we're going through are rooted in, rooted in money, and rooted in the control of money. Um, you know, all across the world we have corrupt governments. I mean, how how many times do we see situations of corruption in with African in African countries or Middle Eastern countries? You know, that that's put out. But the same stuff is happening in you know Western countries. It's just happening everywhere. There's so much corruption. Yeah, in the system and also so many other problems with the money you know you want good hard money you know you want good reliable money you don't want money that can be inflated away and printed at will because the incentive models are skewed you know and and so actually what can happen is bitcoin can bring a lot of more responsibility and 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 um a lot more honesty into into to capitalism uh, I mean, capitalism itself. Look, I'm 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 pro capitalism. I'm not a fan of socialism. Um, I understand some aspects of you know tax and redistribution, but I think I think it's better that we move as far away from that as possible. Um, but people who are pro capitalism in the current system are actually they're actually pro a skewed system. And a great example of this is during the pandemic. Um, it's worth going to look this stuff up. Uh, obviously, the governments across the world instigated lockdowns, which had just like a very dire uh, impact on certain people's lives and careers and businesses they'd maybe spent a long time building up. And the way that's been um, financed is through furlough schemes and, and huge amounts of money and borrowing from the government. But what's happened during that period is you know, some people have been financially ruined by this. 
you know, they've lost their businesses. We've seen how many companies have gone into administration. Yet some of the richest people in the world, their wealth has increased during this period. And you only have to go and look at the stock market. If you look at the S&P in the US, we, you know, productivity is down. Uh, unemployment is up. And yet the stock market is setting new highs. What's happening is that this is an inflation of the currency. If you go and actually measure the S&P, so I always say to people, they say, well, the stock market's doing well. Go look at the stock market measured in gold. When you look at the stock market measured in gold, it isn't doing as well as you think. It's actually, it's actually dropping. And that's because the value of cash itself is being lost. Um, and this is all to do with a, a financial system where there are no tight reins on, on the spending. And I'm, look, I'm not an economist. I, I'm, all I'm doing is repeating things I've heard as best as I can from the interviews I d I've done. I, I recommend going to check out a lady called Lynn Alden. And I did an interview with her. She's great. She's really good. Um, but she talked to me about these cycles, these boom and bust cycles we've all heard of. But the idea being is that the government should, during a period of boom, should be running a surplus and during a bust should be using that surplus to bail themselves out. The problem is, is there's so much desire to hold on to power that governments just spend, 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 and they try and spend themselves out of situations. You know, print more money. How do we fix this problem? Print them. You know, fiscal responsibility isn't popular with the electorate um so we just have we have huge problems across the financial system because of because of the money because it's so easy for the state to print it and to the uh misaligned incentives that come off the back of that just sort of moving on um sort of from that in terms of um i guess like those sort of uh, key sort of documentaries like the deep web and banking on bitcoin and there's um cryptopia um, basically, there's a whole bunch of, of things, especially around um, 2014 to 2015, 16, there was just a boom of these Bitcoin documentaries. Um, we're now sort of five five years or so away from that. And I understand that you're producing your own Bitcoin documentary called Battle for Bitcoin, I believe. I mean, how long, uh, how far along are you in that creative um, process um, I got quite far pre-pandemic. We had uh, fully structured out as like uh, 10 episodes. It was originally going to be a podcast series, 10 podcast episodes. But what I was going to do is I was going to do all the interviews in person and just have a camera crew with me. So following up from the uh, podcast series, if that was successful and somebody was interested in it, thought that could be made into either a mini series or a documentary itself, then I would have all the footage to do that. Um, but the pandemic has essentially put that on pause. So um, I'm, my plan is to do something with that next year once once we can start flying again and I can go and do the interviews. Um, yeah, it's just I, I just started getting into the kind of idea of becoming a filmmaker myself towards the end of last year. I made a couple of very basic documentaries. Um, I did um, one in like Colombia and Venezuela, which is all about what's happening in Venezuela, and another one at the border between Turkey and Greece during the migrant crisis. Just trying to learn. I learned so much in those uh, few weeks, and um, I've still got a huge amount to learn. I'd love to be a become a filmmaker, though. With your documentary series, I mean, what was the sort of biggest misconception or issues with Bitcoin? And I guess, like, to a larger extent with cryptocurrency that you're hoping to kind of examine and dispel with this documentary film? Oh, so it's, that's not really the goal of it. The, ba the battle for Bitcoin really is the story of... So one, one of the interesting things about Bitcoin is, is it is a blockchain. You hear about the blockchain. And I won't go into the technicals about how that works, but essentially the blockchain exists 
to stop something called the double spend, which was a problem that needed solving with regards to digital money. Um, what can happen with the, the blockchain, essentially this chain, is that it can fork. And you've heard about mining. If miners mine both forks, you essentially split it and create two coins. So when you hear about something like Bitcoin Cash or Bitcoin SV, they are essentially forks, okay? Um, it's not the hardest thing in the world to do. There was a time, Bitcoin has a very limited block size. That means every block, which is every 10 minutes we get a new block of transactions and every block it has a like a limit uh, limitation for the amount of data it's one megabyte now there's been some things that have been done which increased the something called the block weight but i think that's too complicated for now but let's just say there's one megabyte of data possible per block what there are a group of people who believed that the transactions were getting too expensive and wanted to increase the block size so they wanted to increase it to two, four, six, you know, whatever megabyte. And the reason they wanted to do that is that if there's only a limited amount of transactions that can get into a block, it's essentially the uh, economic supply and demand that set the transaction fee. So during the 2017 bubble, you were paying up to $50 to send a transaction, which is a lot of money. So you can't use Bitcoin to buy a coffee at that point. You shouldn't be using Bitcoin to buy a coffee anyway. But by the by, some there are some people who believe that transactions transactions could be super cheap and super fast, and therefore needed big block sizes. So there was a huge debate, essentially a war within Bitcoin, where they tried to increase the block size, and it became vicious. I mean, it was a civil war, people attacking each other, arguing on Reddit, fighting about the issues, um, and then what ended up happening? They ended up becoming a split and. Uh, something called Bitcoin Cash was created, and the community split on along that. Um, that was that's essentially what the battle for Bitcoin is. It's that story um, of what happened during that period, and it's, it's essentially it will tell the story of Bitcoin to, to tell that story. But it, yeah, it's, that, it's essentially the story of that period because you know, it's a very very it's probably the most important time in Bitcoin, the most important event. Um, yeah, it was felt like a corporate takeover of Bitcoin. And that's interesting because I think it's, is it Roger Ver who um, created Bitcoin uh, Cash? And for my research, I know that you two have uh, butted heads. And I guess similarly, I saw a rather, uh, uh, what was it? Um, I don't know how I would sort of describe it, but a very, I guess, like testy sort of interview, I guess, with like the Hex creator, uh, Richard Hart, I believe he's called. Uh, <laughs> yeah, fuck that moron. <laughs> Which is... Um, moron. Um, yeah, I mean, um, I, I don't bring it up to sort of like stir the pot, but what I find kind of interesting, and obviously Roger Ver has been, he's featured a lot in the early sort of Bitcoin uh, documentaries, and he's so-called the Bitcoin <clears throat> Jesus. He was sending Bitcoin in documentary, uh, for a documentary I saw through a sort of TV screen, um, and, you know, was sort of yeah. evangelical in his love for Bitcoin, but um, I don't know this person. Um, I only know from what I sort of presented of him. Um, he seems a very sort of like smart uh, individual, but there just seems to be, um, a, you know, a God complex. And I guess you could say the same thing from what I saw of Richard Hart, this idea of sort of like God complex or God complexes within this particular space. So I guess my question is, is like, how have you found, I guess, like navigating um, this sort of like space where the rule of thumb is like, if you haven't retired by the time you're 25 on sort of billions of dollars, you're kind of like uh, past it in a way. Yeah, it's a really, really good question. It is a complicated space full of very strong personalities. 
you know, many have been into Bitcoin way longer than me, you know, earned their stripes, been through all the battles. Uh, I'll deal with Richard Hart very quickly. The guy's a moron and everything he's doing with Hex should be ignored and I just, just forget that stuff. Roger Veer's an interesting character and I have I did fall out with him at some point, but I had the opportunity to interview him early on. I flew out to Tokyo and I did it. Um, there is no denying Roger Veer did a lot for the early days of Bitcoin. He did a huge amount for the promotion of Bitcoin and that on that itself is remembered and respected but he has fallen out with the bitcoin community because his view is that bitcoin should be used for transactions of any size it should be fast uh, and cheap to use you know, doesn't matter whether you're um, want a cup of coffee or you want to buy a car so there's a lot of arguments about that and he fell out with the bitcoin community because he his view is is that it should be doing what bitcoin cash is so he's gone off to do that and it's become a war between him and other people. And I fell out with him at one point, um, really badly, actually. And we butted heads quite a bit. Um, recently, we, you know, I spoke to him again and, you know, agreed to disagree. But like I, you know, you know apologise. And actually, you know, I'm involved in a lawsuit right now. And you know, a lot of people don't know this. Actually, I haven't even talked about this personally. But you know, Roger asked, offered to help me out financially with that because it's a lawsuit I could not afford. And he didn't want anything in return. Like there was no ulterior motive. He was just like, I recognise what you're going through. If I can help, you know, I can write you a check and such. Um, but yeah, so there are a lot of personalities and it's very hard to navigate. One of the biggest challenges is if there's like, there are multiple narratives that happen with Bitcoin. You know, economic ones, ideological ones, um, technical ones. And there's a lot of strong personalities having strong arguments and debates around it. And kind of Bitcoin ends up taking a direction based on those kind of arguments. It's pushed and pulled in directions. But like my view is whatever happens with Bitcoin was best for it based on these arguments. But if you push too far, you go too wild in some area, you know, you're going to get your wrist slapped. And if you continue, you can be, you can become humiliated or, you know, disregarded by the community. You know, Roger's one of those ones now. He's completely fallen out with the whole Bitcoin community. He's doing his own thing and, and, and because his ideas are so far out there and he was seen as somebody who was attacking Bitcoin. Richard Hart, similar. You know, he's created his own shitcoin bullshit and, you know, and he's been disregarded. And there's other, there's other people who are kind of like half and half. There's a guy called Eric Voorhees who I, I really like. I get on really well with uh, strong Bitcoin, uh, long-term early fan of Bitcoin, but he's very much into altcoins. Uh, most most Bitcoiners are very much anti-altcoin. Uh, uh, um, so he's kind of like one foot in, one foot out. Someone like me, I'm fine with him. I get on with him. But there are plenty of people who've you know, totally disregarded him. Um, so it becomes a real challenge trying to navigate that space. And what I try and do because of my podcast is I still want to hear all voices. I, I don't believe any amount of discussion damages anything. It can only help. Even even in, I haven't had Roger Veer on my podcast for years, but I wouldn't be opposed to doing it because things can be learned from those conversations. You know, I think I think people can appreciate. You know, the debate around, for example, if it was block size, whether or not you agree with him, you lose nothing by having the debate. Um. And so I, you know, I will entertain people on my podcast who other people are totally disregarded, and that gets me shit. I mean, I get yelled at all the time for the stuff I do. So yeah, it is a complicated place to navigate, and it is full of strong and interesting personalities. But that's part of the fun of the job as well. 
and just sort of, uh, we sort of talked about it sort of fairly briefly. I was listening to the interview you had with the Winklevoss twins and they were talking about their, I guess, like their their approach to Bitcoin and its valuation within the marketplace against oil and, and gold and also like market cap. Um, and one of the things, I guess, like that onboarded me with sort of like Bitcoin, I guess, what well, two things I'd sort of say for my own personal experience is that... Tom, Tom, let me ask you a question. Tom, let me ask you a question first. Are you a Bitcoiner now? Yes, I, so I have. Um, and pe- this surprises people, actually. I was talking to somebody, oh, like two days ago. I was just having a sort of like chat and we were talking Bitcoin and they asked me, like, oh, do you have any Bitcoin? And I was like, yeah, of course I do. And they were very sort of surprised because I guess they're still living in that 2015 that if you own Bitcoin, um, it's a sort of dark net sort of like uh, token. It's not like a proper sort of bona fide financial um, entity. Um so I can just briefly tell you my 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 Bitcoin uh, story, and that might be sort of like helpful, yeah. I guess, because I guess sharing people's personal experiences, I guess, can only inspire and help other people to sort of join in, and I can say what I did. So um, I'd heard Bitcoin, I heard about Bitcoin for a, for a long for a long time due to sort of like Silk Road and stuff, and friends had been on there and bought stuff, but I'd never I'd never sort of dabbled in that kind of thing. Uh, so I think finally um, I'd watched a few documentaries about it, and I guess like the two things that kind of got me was that it's basically um, the uh, sort of internet sort of like currency or whatever, like it's it's money that can go virtually anywhere. There's nothing that stops it from going anywhere. Um, whereas I guess traditional forms of sort of like currency, they're kind of stopped by exchanges and, and you know, it, money being able to get there or not get there. But this was a money that could go virtually anywhere. So the market cap basically is the entirety of the world. Um which I found really sort of like interesting. And it was also a currency that moved at the speed of the internet, if not sort of like faster. So that sort of really interested me. Um, so I bought just before it hit its first peak, I think it was, in, I looked, I think it was three years ago, like when it hit like 15,000 pounds a coin. And then I just sort of held mm-hmm. and went through the, through the dips basically. Cause I just thought, well, I want to be part of this grand sort of social experiment as well. Cause I guess I have a sort of ideological attachment to it. The idea of there's two and a half unbanked people in the world. Uh, Bitcoin can facilitate them starting sort of like businesses. I want to um, participate in that because I'm not actually a proponent of sort of like char- regular sort of like charity. I don't think that really sort of solves the um, problem. I'm for sort of incentivization of people doing, doing things and being able to sort of start businesses. I think that's a better solution than just giving people either aid or um, sort of like financial assistance because it doesn't give them the means of their own um, production. And I guess that's a sort of long-winded sort of answer. Um, and then the the only, the thing that I would sort of say which inspired me to have this sort of conversation um, w- with you, and it's sort of an odd moment. I was lying in bed um, a few, uh, maybe like last week, and I was like, why can't I earn interest on my Bitcoin? I mean, I earn interest on my, on my pounds and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I did like a little... Um, Google research, and then I found uh, BlockFi. Um, yeah, one of my sponsors. Ex- yeah, yeah. Um, and then I sort of read a bunch about that, and I thought that's that's sort of really interesting. I mean, I've got this Bitcoin that's still s- sitting there. I'd like to earn more Bitcoin without spending more Bitcoin. Um, so I very quickly transferred my very, I think I had about at the time, maybe like 500, 600 pounds worth of Bitcoin, and then I had some Ethereum, and then I had some Litecoin, so I transferred that all over. But then I also listened to your podcast with, uh, with the BlockFi um, founders. Um, forgive me, I can't remember the names um, at this moment. Florian, Zach. So, um, I, and I just found your discussion really interesting, really um, informative. In 
and also the idea that they're going to develop an ecosystem of financial um, services around um, around sort of like Bitcoin, um, which is really interesting um, as well. And I guess the thing that sort of stuck out for me, and maybe for you, was the idea when he was talking about, um, I think it was like blockchain time, um, you know, the idea that sort of in which the way the things sort of the speed of things um, move, which I found really fascinating. That's something that I thought about um a lot in regards to sort of Bitcoin and the way it moves and how it moves and the speed in which it moves as well. Like it is, um, it, essentially it, it's, uh, and I guess in a sort of highfalutin way, it is a new way to sort of like experience time and sort of like currency through the, I guess like the prism of the of the internet, which I find fascinating. So that's basically yeah. my Bitcoin uh, journey in a rather long-winded. Well, something about the blo- BlockFi, even though a sponsor, you know, one thing you have to be aware of is, yes, they they provide financial services, you know, um, interest accounts and uh, loans based on your Bitcoin. But at the point you use those financial services, you no longer control your final financial keys, uh, your private keys. So you are you are you do have risk. You have risk with something going wrong with the company. So I always say, if you're going to use them, don't put all your money in there. But uh, yeah, th- th- they are essentially helping shape part of the the financial future. But that, that's cool that you're in Bitcoin. That's a yeah, and and I guess and sorry, I know this is your interview, but once you've got skin in the game, you're almost obliged to go down the rabbit hole a little bit, and and I think that's when you learn about it. So trying to convince people to get into Bitcoin is really really hard. I mean, I've been telling my friends for so long, but when you say, look, just go and buy a bit and move it into a wallet, and then just go and spend some time learning about it, most people are captivated at that point. I guess you, I guess you you went through a similar thing. I think, yeah, it's like, so I guess the way I sort of like describe it, so there's certain, been there's certain industrial sort of like booms. I guess like, uh, I guess if you invested in sort of like the car when everybody was riding sort of like horses and you got into sort of Ford and stuff, you'd have made a lot of money. Okay, great. So, um, and then I guess like if you'd bought stock in Apple when Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak were making sort of computers in a, in a garage, um, you would have made a lot of money in IBM. So there's these sort of like booms and stuff. And I guess like, um, and I guess like te- tech- uh, technology uh, uh, adoption um, as well, that there's people that can kind of sort of like see the future. If it's not going to be that, it's going to be something um, like that and actually being able to come on board. Um, and even if it, I guess like even if Bitcoin fails, this is the sort of thing I'm happy that if it just completely goes up in a puff of smoke. The idea of Bitcoin and the principles um, behind it are sort of like sound and I think they can be of benefit uh, to the wider world in terms of somewhat um, addressing some of the inequalities and financial constraints that's been placed in the world with sort of fiat currency and, and centralised um, banking. So I guess I see it as a way is that it can improve, hopefully through competition, it might improve um, or force governments to reassess their own sort of like financial policy because I don't quite see uh, Bitcoin at the moment overtaking sort of like pounds and dollars in gold, but it can be a sort of agent of change within those sort of like markets and maybe maybe people think differently about sort of like money and, and finance. Well, you say that, but it's like gravity. The thing about Bitcoin, it is like gravity. Um, the more people tend to learn about it, the more of it they want. Like right now, I'm I've I'm irresponsibly long Bitcoin, and I feel like I don't have enough. Um, and I anything any money I don't need over the next six months goes into Bitcoin. I've always got six months of like cash reserves for any kind of disaster scenario. Everything else goes into Bitcoin because you can you can ride you can usually ride out the volatility over the over a long term period. But 
But if you just track the cycles, yeah, we we nearly had a new we had a dip today, but we nearly had a new all time high this week. We're going to break through twenty thousand, and we will break thirty thousand at one point, and we will most likely, I think, in the next year, break a hundred thousand, and because. You have to look at someone like Michael Saylor from MicroStrategy. You put $450 million of his company treasure into Bitcoin. He said, I'm on a melting ice cube. You know, this money is a melting ice cube. Where can I get returns right now? I, I'm going to put it into the best form of money there is and, and let it sit there. And you know, Square put $50 million in. And you know, this Mexican billionaire put 10% of his liquid wealth in. Like people, The more people who do that, the more value it has. And then over time, you, you will eventually have this... You know, you eventually have this, um, what do they call it? It's a tipping point. It's like the book. Think about it like this. I'll go back to my an- analogy of CDs and MP3s. There was a time, you know, well, I still bought CDs and you did. And, you know, we would have shops. We would have Andy's Records or Our Price um, where you could go and buy your CDs and HMV. Most of these stores are closed now. If you get a HMV, it's like a jumble sale. Like they, they sell records and things. And you've got CDs probably for for, for the the, ch- the top charts and you know, but most people these days there's no reason to be buying CDs. You know, the in the CD industry is almost almost gone. You you could get an absolute tipping point with Bitcoin, where so many people just start putting their money into Bitcoin because they think they they see it as a dominant form of money. It ends up killing off sovereign currencies because why why especially if Bitcoin the price starts to stabilize. Yeah, it's volatile because it's still a small market. You know, even though it's 350 billion, that's a small market. You know, it gets, yeah, it gets interesting when it's two, three, five trillion. Once it gets to that point, it's such a liquid market. The ability to move the price is very difficult. Um, also, the Bitcoin will be distributed into more and more hands. So what ends up happening is the price becomes a bit more stable, but you will always know that it cannot be debased. So so people over time will gradually think, shit, I want my money in that. I want it in the best form of money. Um, yeah, Bitcoin's volatile right now. And you can't go from zero to 350 billion in 10 years without volatility. But just imagine it wasn't volatile. Just imagine like it was actually quite stable. And it kept growing in value, but just gradually and slowly. You know, maybe rather than these big jumps, every, every week it just went up, say, $100 in value per Bitcoin. And there was no volatility. Where would you hold your money? So I think what's going to happen is over time, we've got a lot of volatility now because it's new and it's risky. And the people who are putting their money in earlier, if they're right, are going to be the most rewarded. And those people who come later on because yeah, it's a bit risky, it's less risky, are going to see lower returns. But they're still going to be investing under the same principle that there's only 21 million and therefore, basic supply and demand economics plays out. But there will become a tipping point. So there's something that I wanted to sort of talk to you about in terms of like value versus utility that's been talked a lot in terms of sort of like Bitcoin and the idea of the uh, Lightning Network and sort of the transactional nature of, of Bitcoin. So, um, and I've heard you sort of uh, sort of speak about it, I guess, with the Winklevoss um, podcast, the idea, and also like the... the BlockFi found as well. The, this idea of SATs, which for people who don't know, I'll do my little best to sort of explain it. So a SAT is a, a Satoshi um, and one SAT. I can't, uh, you're probably going to know this. Or you're going to know this. A hundred million. So um, think about it like they're, they're like they're like pounds and pennies. Okay. 
you know, there's not there's a hundred pennies in a pound. There's a hundred million sats in a bitcoin. So we started, you know, that sort of flicking that switch to say, okay, right. So bitcoins like the whole thing, uh, the thing. But like maybe what would make people adopt more if they sort of started thinking about in sats or paying things in sat in sats and stuff like small denominations of of, of bitcoin that that might be like an easier. Um, Wayne, because I guess they, when you talk to people, and it's very sort of abstract in a way. You say like, "Well, I'm buying Bitcoin." They think you have to buy like a whole, a whole coin. Yeah, you can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. That, that's the that's the meme. You can buy a fraction of a Bitcoin. And that's the thing, and it's so w- weird uh, that sort of the, that sort of hump to get over because they immediately see the price of the uh, Bitcoin in it. it. It sort of like puts them off. Um, and also, I guess the terminology like coin as well. It seems like it should be. Um, you know, coins are small things. They're not large, um, important things um, in a way. Oh, well, only because they've been only only because they've been debased. There was a time where the, you know, a gold coin was was probably worth a lot. Yeah, you know, they just it's all to, down to debasement. So we just sort of spoke about it a little briefly um, in terms of the perception of Bitcoin. So the thing that I sort of like struggle with um, talking with family and friends is basically it's a bubble. It's a Ponzi scheme. It's fake money. Yeah, I know for a fact people who spent £1,400 on a single Pokemon card on eBay like more than once. So I'd say, and this is, you know, somebody in their sort of like early 20s. So, and this is sort of unfathomable unfathomable, uh, to me that essentially somebody would pay that amount of money for a, for a Pokemon card and like the Pokemon sort of like uh, market, yet they're appalled and really put off by... um, Bitcoin and it's just like how do you get people to kind of make that sort of like jump and even like a a, a small one because I'd say for me I invest in lots of different things like peer-to-peer lending like gold and, and funds and all sorts of stuff but I also have a percentage of my portfolio in Bitcoin because it makes sense to me to sort of like uh, diversify in a way and I guess that speaks to a larger sort of like question about just your inherent sort of like financial education in this country is incredibly poor. Yet um, Marcus Rashford will talk about, um, rightly so, will talk about getting school dinners for people who can't um, afford them and, you know, the inequality um, of that. But we don't talk about the inequality of financial education in this country. And I just wondered for you... Um, how would you personally go about maybe improving um, financial education, I guess, is, is my long-winded way of asking this question. Yeah, you know, we, we have uh, an education system where it's designed by the state, right? Why would they teach you financial literacy, which would teach you everything they're doing is wrong <laughs> and the game is rigged in their favour? Um, we talk, we're taught Keynesian econ- economics, which, you know, if we were to be taught, we'd be taught things like MMT. We'd be taught that inflation is a natural part of the economy. You need inflation because if you have def- deflation, um, um, uh, it's poor for the economy. There's no incentive for the government to teach people the rules of the game that is rigged in their favour. And this isn't conspiracy. You know, this isn't just some, like, cocked-up conspiracy. It just It's fact that there is no incentive to teach financial literacy even economics is uh the economics um not degree a level i did i know is largely flawed in in a number of ways um it's also very difficult to convert people into bitcoin it just is i've i i have anyway i've got the biggest bitcoin podcast in the world and i can't even convince my friends right people will find it when they need it or they will find it when they have to or they will they will just find it at some point or another and usually through a painful lesson. I've travelled the world with my podcast and 
one of the most interesting things was when I last year I was in uh, Uruguay and I was sat down with two guys from Argentina. They get it. <laughs> they they get Bitcoin straight away because Argentina has been through so many periods of inflation and the Coralito and when there was a run on the banks and, and the banks essentially stole their money. Now, in Argentina, they do not trust the government and trust money. Um, they do not trust the banks. They keep money at home under the mattress. You know, it's very easy to explain Bitcoin to people in Lebanon. It's really hard to explain it to people in the UK and in Western countries because the debasement of our currencies is so insidious and slow. You know, one, two percent inflation a year. You know, maybe you hit four percent. But we have, we've not had that kind of like 40 percent in a year. If if you were to experience 40 percent inflation, if you were to go, you know, and suddenly see a, a you know, pint of beer was suddenly eight pound rather than five pound. And if you were going to go shopping and suddenly, you know, a hundred pound shop now costs you 200 pound. You know, if you suddenly saw the inflation directly happening in, in, your, in front of your eyes, you would get it. But you don't because it's insidious and slow. And that's a problem. But, but convincing people is really hard. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And it's weird, um, as we've sort of, uh, sort of spoken about, they're happy to pay money for a service where you don't own your own music sort of physically. It's sort of like stored somewhere else. And there's lots of things in our lives that we're happy not to have physical, um, to sort of physically own anymore. Um, but when it comes to money, people have a very sort of antiquated view of it. And also, you know, from my sort of own research, that when I get sort of like paid, it's only ones and zeros um that are going in and they're just being sort of transferred i very rarely hold any sort of like cash um so essentially all our money is sort of like digital now anyway and you're i guess like as you've spoken about there's one that's basically they can print as much money as they want and another one there's a sort of finance uh, finite resource event holds sort of like value so even on just a very sort of like basic uh level of understanding one to my mind seems to make a lot more sense um I mean, what I would say, if any if anyone's listening to this and they're like, mm, I'm doubtful, whatever, I was like, it, it it's not gonna it's it's not gonna cost you much to spend a day looking into this. And if you really want to get some skin in the game, just buy a hundred quid's worth. You just buy a hundred pound of Bitcoin and transfer it to your wallet, listen to a couple of podcasts, um, learn a little bit about what's happening with the economy and with uh, um yeah, the amount, I mean, the US is something like 80% of all the money they've ever borrowed has been in the last year or something ridiculous. Just go and look at this. Go and look at, just go and spend some time. Um, I promise you, very few people who have actually spent the time digging into this have come out going, no, nah, I still don't believe it. It's the people, the only people, the, the non-believers I tend to find are people who haven't spent much time because they can't get their head around this concept of a decentralized money that isn't controlled by the state. Um, they can't that's that and also the people who discovered it very early on but didn't buy they usually tend to be really negative because they regret they've got so much regret like it's too expensive at ten dollars hundred dollars i'm not buying a hundred it's too expensive and then a thousand dollars and then they become very cynical and very hateful of it but there's a very good interview i did with a guy called vj boyapati called the bullish base uh, the bullish case for bitcoin which is entirely based on an essay he wrote about money and bitcoin it's worth checking it out and i've also on my podcast i've got like a 17 part beginner's guide that will teach you all about money and bitcoin it is worth investing the time it is definitely worth investing the time um so i just have two final questions for you um before you wrap up 
Um, and I, I love these. I think this is so interesting to be able to sort that lesson back as well. So um, I'm going to ask you your three big predictions for Bitcoin in the next five years. Oh, good question. Three big predictions. Well, I don't like doing price predictions, but at the same time, I do believe certainly over the next five years, we will see a Bitcoin over $100,000. I'm very, very confident of that. Um, every Every model I've looked at is pointing in that direction. So that's prediction one. Um, prediction two is we are going to see um, a, a, a big challenge to Bitcoin coming from the state at some point. Um, once a lot of money starts getting swallowed up and people realize that Bitcoin is a dominant form of money, that is a threat to the state. That is a threat to that is a threat to government. That is a threat to their control of finances. Um, now depending on which country you're in, the, the response will be different. I mean, it's already kind of banned in China and I'd expect Russia will probably possibly do the same and maybe India and Brazil, those more kind of authoritarian countries. I think in kind of modern Western liberal democracies, it's going to be much harder. Um, I think the state will find it difficult to do that, which will kind of start splitting the world into pro-Bitcoin and, and con-Bitcoin countries. So that's that's something I would be keeping an eye out for. Uh, the other big prediction I would put is, hmm, it's not a Bitcoin prediction, but it's a, a it's a prediction related to to Bitcoin. I th I think over the next five years we're going to see the failure, the or relative failure of a significant Western currency, whether it's the dollar, the pound, the euro. And when I say failure, I, I don't mean it's just it's going to collapse in the way people think. But we will see high inflation and therefore massive debasement of the currency. Um, it could be that the US dollar note is no longer the world reserve currency anymore. I, I don't really know. But I would I would say keep an eye on that because that will drive money into into Bitcoin. And uh, and finally, um, what's your uh, dream project if money and time wasn't an issue? <laughs> I think you know this. Have you done your research? Do you know? Oh, oh, that's a great question, actually. Oh, actually, I'm going to say, uh, for argument's sake, I don't. Right, so there's two. Like, I really actually want to be a filmmaker. So let's just put that one out there. I've always, ever since I was a kid, and it was just one of those things I never thought actually would be possible. I just don't know how people do it. And then I, you know, saved some money and travelling with my show, I brought a camera guy and we made a couple of films and I think they're a bit shit, but I learned a lot. Uh, I would eventually like to become a filmmaker. Like, my goal is maybe 10 years' time, you know, when I hopefully made enough money off the Bitcoin thing, I can just go and become a filmmaker. And I, I would love to do it. But perhaps I'll call you up and say, Tom, how the fuck do I do this? Um, my other thing I really, really want to do is I want to become a Bitcoin billionaire, which probably won't happen. But I would I would like to buy Bedford Town Football Club and get them in the Football League. Yep, I knew it. I thought that's why you'd asked it, because I've always said, like, I've, I always told my parents, because I support Liverpool, but I'm from fucking Bedford, mate. You know what that's like. Um I always wish we'd had a team. We're like, for the size town we are, we should have a decent team. And we're not. We're in the lowest of low divisions. So I um, I always said I was going to buy Bedford Town and get them in the Football League. Um, and that's still my goal. It's still my goal, Tom. Because well, for people who don't know who are, li are listening, um, we Peter and I are both based in uh, Bedford, which is, a, I guess, like a small, well, largest, smallish sort of like uh, commuter town, which is uh, about 45 minutes outside of London on, on the train. Um, 
And I guess what's fascinating having this sort of interview is that, that, that somebody who has the number one podcast, uh, Bitcoin podcast in the world, lives in Bedford. It just completely um, blows my mind. <laughs> but yeah, that's funny. How funny is that, though, isn't it? Like, um, it's just a funny... I, I, I'm very pro-Bedford and I always big up Bedford on the podcast. And I think people are always like, what is this funny town? But I'm being... You know, if, how funny. Uh, just quickly, how can people get in touch uh, and get in contact with you and, and find your podcast? Yeah, so, well, I actually have two podcasts. So th there is the Bitcoin show, which is What Bitcoin Did. Um, just search for What Bitcoin Did, you will find that. Uh, I have another show called Defiance, where I kind of touch on other subjects. Um, I did an investigation into Ghislaine Maxwell, doing a series about Donald Trump kind of at the moment, and you know, range, range of things there. And um, just reach out to me on Twitter. It's uh, at Peter McCormack. Um, and my DMs are open. Happy to talk to anyone. And listen, once, um, once this lockdown is over, uh, let's go and grab a coffee sometime. So there you have it. I had a great time chatting with Peter. And you can check out the What Bitcoin Did podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify and YouTube right now. Just click the link in the description box below. And don't forget to check out more great content on Aruba.com, from film reviews, video game hot takes and top 10 videos. And why not sign up and become a member and share your passion for all things entertainment on Aruba.com today. And you can like and subscribe to I Was Just Wondering with Tom Salmon on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify and YouTube. And maybe leave a comment or review if you like. And you can support the podcast on Subscribestar at www.subscribestar.com forward slash I was just wondering with Tom Salmon right now. Thank you so much for listening. I've been Tom and I'll catch up with you next episode.